Welcome to Healthy Conversations. This is your host, Matt McGee. In our first episode, I talk with Dr. Bricker on the future of healthcare, his time at Compass, and what mid-sized employers should be doing to be better consumers of healthcare. Enjoy. Matt McGee is an employee of Frost Insurance. All opinions shared by Matt or guests of the Healthy Conversations podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Frost Insurance or Frost Bank. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for insurance, banking, or investment advice. Healthy Conversations with Matt McGee is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts. Dr. Brigger, thank you for coming on Healthy Conversations. I appreciate it. Hey, Matt, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's get rolling. So I wanted to start it off by just simply asking uh, how you got into medicine, how you kind of transitioned into starting Compass and end with what you're doing now with a healthcare Z. Sure. And I will I'll give the uh, give the abridged version. I am a, uh, a general internist and I went to the uh, University of Illinois at Chicago for medical school and then went on to uh, Johns Hopkins uh, for residency in internal medicine. And actually, before I went into medical school, I used to be a hospital finance consultant. So I worked in the billing and business office at major medical centers because, as probably a lot of people know, like docs and hospitals have a lot of trouble getting paid, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be by Medicare, Medicaid, or by commercial insurance companies. So, um, and this was in the 90s, and I have no physicians in my family, and every physician I talked to said, whatever you do, don't become a doctor because managed care and HMOs have just ruined ruined it, ruined the profession. And I said, okay, well, why is it? Is that all the paperwork? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, I want to learn about that. And so that's really why I wanted to go into sort of, you know, hospital, you know, finance and billing. And I learned all about, you know, coding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was just a fascinating experience. And so, I, you know, after doing that, I still wanted to become a physician. And I, but I also knew that I didn't just you know want to want to have a a you know quote unquote typical physician career you know you know seeing thirty patients a day, and so as I um, went through medical school and residency, I had kept in touch with one of my former uh, consulting colleagues who had moved on to become the EVP of finance for a major healthcare system like six billion dollar healthcare system. And okay. so he and I were seeing the same frustration and confusion at with me at the patient bedside and him in, in the billing office with people not, just not understanding their bills or their costs or what they owed or what they didn't owe. And so we knew at Doc and Hospital Insider that we could take what we knew and bring that to people that that would be potentially very helpful for them. And of course, as non-employee benefits people, we like, well, we didn't know how to do that. And so after, you know, knocking on a whole bunch of doors and talking to a whole bunch of people, like, oh, everybody gets this through their job. That's how they really get this. So we started talking to uh, employers and brokers and consultants, and this was in 2007, 2008, which was really sort of the beginning of consumer-directed health plans with uh, health savings accounts or health reimbursement arrangements. And so now, as employers were moving in that direction, typically offering it as like a dual option with a traditional uh, PPO plan, that for folks that were choosing that higher deductible HSA plan, they were, you know, they had a lot more financial responsibility. They were asked to be quote unquote healthcare consumers. I don't really even like the word consumer. Uh, I prefer the room like steward, right? It's like mm-hmm. you and the, and the company are supposed to be, you know, good stewards of your, you know, healthcare, you know, dollars. But, you know, your typical employee and their family was like, well, I have no idea how to do that. And sort of the, the logical person to ask about that would be the doctor. 
and the doctor would be like, well, I don't, I don't know what any of this stuff costs. You know, I don't, I, you know, so talk to your insurance company. And that would be incredibly confusing and frustrating because as, you know, many people know in healthcare, just, you know, the, the miscommunication is just rampant. You know, left hand doesn't talk to the right, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we kind of knew and we could sort of act as like ombudsman because we could, we could talk the insurance talk. We could talk the, the clinical talk. We could talk the hospital talk and we could really advocate for employees and their families. And obviously that was in the interest of the employer as they moved to these plans because they needed some type of navigation tool to help their employees with that transition and in that new role as a healthcare consumer. That's why we encompass professional health services. Yeah. And we, um, we, we bootstrapped the company and uh, grew it to um, 2,000 employer clients. And it was it was a lot of uh, mid market employers, kind of 100 to 2,000 employees, but we had a, a lot of uh, major uh, uh, corporate uh, clients as well, like Chili's, Montana's Restaurants, T-Mobile, Southwest Airlines, and we literally had members in Alaska and Florida and everywhere in between, uh, literally members in all 50 states. And um, it Compass was then subsequently purchased by a light solutions in July of 2018 and a light solutions is essentially X Hewitt. So about 10, 12 years ago, Aon bought Hewitt and it became Aon Hewitt. And then about two years ago, um, uh, Aon decided to essentially spin out just the benefits administration side of their business. So not the brokerage, not the consulting, but just the Ben admin side mm -hmm. because they used to do a ton of HR outsourcing. Uh, and so when they spun it out, they sold it to Blackstone, the big private equity firm, and then they changed the name from, you know, Aon Hewitt to Alight. So Alight Solutions has like 10,000 employees. And obviously, you know, Hewitt's been around for like, you know, 80, 90 years. And so now Compass is not only integrated in the Ben Admin platform for Alight and its uh, customers, but then, you know, still our existing customer base. And if people are not using Alight, but they still want to have access to Compass. So you can almost think of Compass as like a product within Alight mm -hmm. now as their navigation solution. So it really was a fantastic opportunity for Compass to actually reach uh, a broader audience and to be able to work with, you know, really, I would say a, a very, you know, forward-thinking, like-minded uh, group of people. and um, that so that that's kind of that kind of got me to where I am today, and so I have taken some um, some time to spend with my family since uh, leaving uh, a light and compass in December of last year. And what I found when I was speaking with, because as the chief medical officer of Compass heavily involved in sales and marketing. I spend the majority of my time talking with brokers and consultants and HR uh, folks, benefits folks uh, in selling uh, Compass's services. And I just saw a real just lack of understanding around many of the ways that the healthcare system worked and many of the ways that they, being the employers and the employees, were being delivered low value which is like a nice way of saying to a certain extent, like exploited and kind of being taken for a ride. And so what I wanted to do was sort of continue that education process and just to, just to kind of tell people, you know, shoot them straight and tell them how, tell them how things really work. 
so mm-hmm. that, you know, when folks like you, Matt, and, you know, your colleagues go out and talk with employers and you, because I found that, that, that brokers and consultants, they spent so much time trying to convince their employer clients of, you know, how the world of insurance like really worked and how the world of claims really worked. And a lot of times, even the HR people and the benefits people, they would, they would get it. So even if you could get through to them, then they would have to go to their uh, executive team, management team, C-suite, et cetera. And oftentimes those folks, whether it be approving budget or, you know, prioritizing it within the organization, they just, they just then wouldn't get it. So there was just a, 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 a basic level of, um, you know, basically creating more fertile soil for really the improvement that we're all trying to do. And that's all I'm trying to do with these videos is to say, hey, look, let me give you these small vignettes that are, you know, three to seven minutes long. Yeah, they've been tremendously helpful. Yeah, like, you know, hey, hospitals don't do cost accounting. You probably (laughs) didn't know that. Or, you know, hey, you know, uh, a lot of these, you know, um, you know, medical device companies and pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, they actually, you know, are the main sponsors behind charitable organizations and are using that as a way to actually push more of their product. Uh, oh, by the way, did you know that? And there, you know, and I could go on and on, but I'll stop. But that was, that was a very long winded answer to your initial <laughs> question. So thank you for, for being so patient with me. Yeah, absolutely. There was a lot there. Uh, I'm curious, as the chief medical officer for Compass, like, how did you guys initially convince some of these larger middle market employers to to come on board in the first place? Well, I think that it it's important for anybody that's trying to push for change in healthcare to understand what's referred to as the technology adoption lifecycle model. And this is a very famous model that was written about by an author named Jeffrey Moore in his book, Crossing the Chasm, in which mm-hmm. to say, look, anytime you are promoting uh, behavior change in any area, and the original research on this was actually done with farmers and their adoption of new crops, you'll have a bell-shaped curve where, you know, starting on the left-hand side, you have the early adopters, and then you have the pragmatists, and then you have the conservatives, and then you have the skeptics. And we at Compass didn't have some sort of, you know, magical Rolodex of who the early adopters were. We just talked to a ton of people. And one of the great things about Jeffrey Moore's book is that, look, if it falls along a, what's referred to as a, a you know, a Gaussian curve or a normal distribution, then, you know, the, 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 the cutoff between the early adopters and the pragmatists is about one standard deviation. So it's going from the mean, so it's going to be about 17% of the population. And then the pragmatists are 33%, the conservatives are 33%, and then the skeptics are the, are the, are the last 17%. And so if you, if you knocked on a hundred doors, you would probably get 17 people that kind of got it and would want to do it. So then it really became a numbers game. And we just had to talk to a lot of people. And um, I would, it was, it was, of course, what every person in sales experiences. It was an incredibly humbling experience. Oh, absolutely. When, like 83 out of 100 people have no interest in talking to you. <laughs> so it's like, okay. And I, you know, so I, I, I learned very quickly that you just have to have thick skin and you just got to keep, you know, smiling and dialing and, you know, just talking to lots of people. And it's kind of like baseball. If you, if you can hit it, you know, three times out of 10, then you get into the Hall of Fame. And that is, 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 is kind of how we start. And so, and, and the 
at Mind and T-Mobile and uh, and Chili's Marciano's and all these other you know great places, they had a specific you know they they kind of you know after the early adopters you get the pragmatists and that's really mm-hmm. where you start getting the the larger volume of client base and really those pragmatists. The key to them is is they have a discrete problem that they are looking to solve and. You know, they're not, you know, the early adopters, I mean, they're just into something because it's new and it's cool and it's going to give them an advantage over their competition, et cetera. Whereas the pragmatist is like, hey, I've got pain and I need to do something about that pain in the near future. And that's where the, the pain specifically was, hey, I really need to move my employees to a consumer directed health plan with an HSA or an HRA, either because that's my strategic vision or I got a healthcare cost problem or, you know, yada, yada, yada. And my employees have no tool to help them in that transition. And so that's where they said, okay, well, we can turn to Compass to solve that discrete problem that we have. Gotcha. Uh, that makes total sense. Uh, back to A Healthcare Z. I mean, I would be curious to see uh, or to hear what surprises you've uh, seen in the past six months of doing these videos outside of the fashion advice you seem to be getting. Oh, yes. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for that joke. I'm, so, I'm still trying to tweak my wardrobe. <laughs> to please the audience. Um, and I'll tell you, one of the most recent developments is that, of course, you know, it is amazing. It, it's amazing to me that, of course, in an age where we have, you know, incredibly inexpensive video that can be transmitted all over the world. So you can just yeah. communicate with almost anybody via video. And, of course, I intended this for a U.S. audience. Mm-hmm. But because I post my videos on LinkedIn, there's obviously a very large global audience for uh, LinkedIn. And my newest, like within the past two weeks, fastest growing segment of viewers are actually computer programmers in India that specifically work for a large U.S. health insurance company. Because they, huh? of course, out. You know, I don't want to say outsource because they are actually employees of the company, but they have, you know, they, they, they have globalized their software development, right? Makes sense. A lot of companies do yeah. that, right? So how does software development typically work? Well, you send you, you, the product people have a, a sheet of specs that they give to a computer programmer and the computer programmer creates the code to meet the specs. Now, typically the computer programmer has no idea what those specs mean or like why they're creating the code. And so here it is. All these software programmers are like, oh. This video actually explains why I'm doing what I'm doing. No one ever told me this before. And I think that's awesome. I yeah, that is reason, awesome. And the reason it's awesome is because if you talk to a software developer, they will tell you, if I actually understand the end reason for why it is I'm doing what I'm doing, that I can actually make much better software. Because mm-hmm. what you're telling me to do, there might be actually a better way to do it. And if you tell me why I'm doing it, then I'm probably more apt to figure out that better way as opposed to just, you know, cranking out lines of code to meet your specs. So that, that, that is, that is surprise, surprise number one uh, that has happened. Awesome. Um, I'm curious. I wonder how they found it just in the past two weeks. I wonder if somebody shared it or I wonder how they came across it or if you've talked to any of them or kind of has any of that played out yet? It's, you know, they've obviously messaged me through uh, LinkedIn, and okay. it's been, obviously, they have um, software 
programmer counterparts here in the United States that specifically work in the healthcare IT industry. Okay. And so I, those people here in America, it, you know, then have contacts that work in, you know, sales or the brokerage community or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it, it kind of initially made its way into the brokerage benefit concern, you know, world, the, you know, the insurance carrier rep world, and those people are connected to the IT people. And then those people have IT connections over in India. And so, and that's why, you know, I've been doing this for about five months now. And okay. so that's why it probably took that amount of time. And we've grown to the point where we have you know, anywhere from 10 to 20,000 views a week LinkedIn for the videos. And it's a, I, I typically do a, a Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday video. So across those three videos, you know, some weeks it's lower, some weeks it's higher, but it really, I mean, it's not a huge number. I mean, I tell my kids I'm a very like uncool YouTuber. Right? <laughs> I mean, anybody, anybody, can, anybody who posts videos on LinkedIn is like the uncool version of a YouTuber. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's not like, and of course their expectations are like, dad, you have like a million views. I'm like, no, I'm not. How about a thousand? <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, I'm slowly working my way up. Well, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I had some questions around trends in employer healthcare, if you want to change gears quickly. Uh, Sounds great. What, yeah, what companies do you think should be on the radar of like a, a mid-sized Texas employer? Uh, like Simple Pay, met with those guys a couple weeks ago. They seem to be doing some very innovative things. Uh, did you have any other companies that might not be on a bunch of people's radar, but should be here in the next six months to a year. I will tell you that I am, you know, heavily uh, biased in favor of Simple Pay because when Compass sold, our CEO Scott Chainvogel and I yeah. left, and Scott is the uh, is the president and the main force behind Simple Pay. And so, of course, Absolutely. I think, you know, very highly of Scott, and I think very highly he's a very smart guy. He's an incredible uh, problem solver, and his will is just amazing. I mean, he's just able, he kind of, he kind of has that Steve Jobs will. He can just, like, will things into existence. Um, <laughs> so I think what yeah, I have, I've noticed in, you know, I, so I love mid-market and small group employers, and that's because it, in those organizations, they're they're small to the point where the broker consultant and HR actually have a voice with the CEO because ultimately the company's budget and priority they really all roll up to that one person right mm -hmm. and in a very in these very large organizations that we would work with like the even like the head of HR like they would almost never talk to the CEO like they had they had it, it was very hard for them to prioritize what they were doing within human resources with the CEO, but in small and mid-market groups, they're much more accessible. And a lot of brokers and consultants actually meet with the CEO because, you know, we're talking an organization with 50 people, 150 people, 1,000 people. Okay. So with that being said, what I experienced over the years with the brokers and consultants that we worked with was that employers have very unique healthcare profiles or footprints. They're not all the same. And what I mean by that is they're not all the same in terms of their their claims drivers. If you have a company with a lot of young employees, labor and delivery might be one of their main claims drivers, where if you mm -hmm. have a company with more middle-aged and older employees, then it'll be like cardiovascular or musculoskeletal will be like the main, the main drivers. Uh, two, the distribution of the employees is very important. Are they highly centralized at a municipality? They're all 
or are they are they a very spread out you know sales organization? I mean, there are mid market companies that are let, let's say headquartered in in Texas, but have employees all over the country, and they're only like a two hundred mm-hmm. employee company. We had one of our early customers. This is the coolest customer ever. They're the company that actually does the uh, the sampling displays in grocery stores. So you go in and you're like, That's hey, try cool. the Swedish meatball. Right? That's actually not a grocery store employee that does that. It's this company. that, And so they would have employees all over the country in grocery stores promoting the Swedish meatballs. And um, so obviously the, the distribution of those employees is very different than a highly centralized municipality. And so I promise you, Matt, I will answer your question eventually. <laughs> so those things in regards to the types of claims they generate the, the, the geographic location of the employees. There's other dynamics as well, but for the sake of brevity, I won't go into all of them. That means that each you know HR person and their broker benefit consultant, they really need to tailor the solution to their specific profile, if you will. So the analogy I use is kind of like a doctor and a patient. And yeah, so I heard that this morning. HR person are like they're like the doctors, and you have to diagnose the group, right? And you you know for some people. Then, you know, hey, you need a blood pressure pill. For somebody else, like, hey, you need a cholesterol pill. For somebody else, like, hey, you need a diabetes pill. But you don't give everybody a blood pressure pill because not mm-hmm. everybody has high blood pressure. Right? That wouldn't make any sense. And you would never expect that from a physician, nor would you expect that from a broker consultant. And so that's where really you see, and of course, I'm biased towards navigation because that's what Compass does, right? So you see navigation and transparency. You see near-site, on-site clinic. You see reference-based pricing. You see... Um, uh, second opinion programs, uh, and I, I I could go on and on, but you basically need to take that um, that toolbox and apply that to the employer. Now, um, I will tell you that when I was a vendor. Like, I, I almost feel like, like vendor is like a pejorative term, right? It's like, oh. Yeah, for sure. Right? But, um, like, what would I want an employer, if, I, if, if my role and the employer's roles were reversed and I was buying the vendor's services, what would I, especially having, you know, started a, a vendor, what would I really want to know about that vendor is, of course, I would want to know their sales pitch, right? And you'd want to talk to their salesperson, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You want to learn of, about the, the fit of the product. But I actually feel like you get past that pretty quickly. And in other words, you know, am I, am I evaluating a solution that fits with what it is I'm looking for? So, for example, if you have a highly concentrated group of employees in like a municipality school system, et cetera, et cetera, like a near site on site clinic, like that makes, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. For that company that does the Swedish meatball ad, you know, selling in grocery stores, that makes no sense whatsoever because their employees are spread so thin that there is no, there is no centralized place where you can have people. Right. So mm-hmm. in terms of the fit, you can get to that fa- you know, fairly quickly. I think what, what you then need to get at is, what is the ability of that vendor to deliver, right? To execute. Okay. So that, and I feel like that is where the broker consultant can really add a lot of value in terms of vetting that vendor, right? Because the HR people are very busy to a certain extent. The HR people are paying the broker and consultant to do that vetting for them. 
and I really think it involves lifting up the hood and kicking the tires and in detail examining that vendor. What do I mean by that? I mean, one, you literally go and see it. Like, you got to see it with your own eyes. You got to see the people working and you have to watch them work. I agree. And that means like walking around. And that means like, hey, when I walk around, like, I'm just going to talk to people. And I'm going to, whoever my tour guide is, I'm like, hey, I appreciate your tour. I'm going to, can I go up and I talk to people and just ask them like what they're doing? Because when I do that, like, I want to hear those employees talk. Like, I, I literally want to hear them talk. Why do I want to, want to literally hear them talk? Because the ability to execute to a certain extent, to a large extent, is based upon the competency of the people at the company. Mm-hmm. So as a broker and consultant, it's actually really important to vet the competency of the people at the company. I don't want to talk to them. And I mean, you're a smart guy. Your colleagues are smart people. You would know in talking to them if they actually know what they're talking about. Absolutely. So I won't, I won't go any further. I could go, I could go on and on about that. But specifically, so I don't, you know, I, I, I apologize for, for being evasive in your, um, in your question. I don't have any, so I, I don't, you know, one of my a health care things is, is like, I don't, you know, nobody sponsors me, et cetera, et cetera. So I, yeah, I like that part. Naming specific, you know, I kind of want to re- refrain from naming any specific names because then people are like, oh no, well, you're just getting paid to say so-and-so. Oh, Rather sure. than doing that, I'm just going to say, I'm just not going to say anybody. Yeah, I think this might be a better question. I mean, you've alluded to some of it, but I mean, are there any trends that you're seeing outside of that, that navigation, reference-based pricing, some of the things you spoke about in this morning's video of kind of what's next on that employer-sponsored side of things? Like, I guess that might be a better question. I would say for sure nearsight on-site clinic. And, my, you know, my basic for my basis for saying that is the experience of employers that have put those in place in terms of a number one increasing the quality of care and the health of their employees and then the subsequent reduction of costs that goes along with that and you know the a number one source for that of course is the company that, that solved healthcare by John Torres and mm-hmm. his story at Saragraph now that worked for them because they were a manufacturing company in the automotive industry about a thousand employees self-funded on a major ASO carrier and network and they had an on-site clinic, and they could do that because they had a you know a, a you know manufacturing facility where almost everybody was in one location. I had the um, the fortunate um, opportunity to speak at several you know sort of conferences alongside John Torrance. So I was able to chat with him you know before and afterwards, and he said really the key to the success of Serograph was really that clinic. It really was. They did a whole bunch of other stuff too in terms of navigation and transparency and centers of excellence and incentive plans and communication. Uh, an executive buy-in, but he said, really, that nearsighted onsite clinic. And here's the reason for that: is because the um, one primary care really is the foundation for a successful uh, for successful healthcare delivery. And what I mean by that is a a competent primary care physician. Because that, that's how people are used to get. Think about how oh, people absolutely. are used to get healthcare. They're, get, they're used to getting healthcare from their pediatrician, right? Your mm-hmm. opinions about a physician are formed as a child, and they're formed with a pediatrician. So, you you know, no one sees a benefit consultant. No one thinks about their deductible when they're a child, right? No. You're like, no, I'm just going to the doctor. It's like, that's what I talk to about my health because that's what I did as a child. 
So you basically need to work within that framework. And if you try to work outside of that framework, at the end of the day, that's just very unnatural for people. So you want to work within that framework and you want to have that person be aligned financially with the plan. In other words, you want to have them on salary. Now, whether or not they're like they directly work for the plan, they directly work for the plan or they work for a vendor, like that's not the important point. The important point is that they're on salary. So fee for service, in my opinion, is a is a subconsciously corrupting force within healthcare. Like I almost, you know, I this is this is going too far. I will admit that this is going too far. <laughs> but I would even argue that it is a it is a uh, it is a to a certain extent it is a financial public health risk akin to like germ theory, right? Because it's like there absolutely is potential harm that is caused by overdiagnosis and over uh, treatment. And you do not want to create a financial environment that could potentially promote that. And therefore, and then again, this is what, when I did the video on the Mayo Clinic, this is why yeah, it's all Dr. Fun. Mayo in the 1800s knew this. He saw this in physicians in the 1800s in America. And he said, we got to put the doctors on salary because if they charge fee for service, they're going to start doing things that they shouldn't do. And he mm -hmm. knew that like 150 years ago. And that model is, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, so Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway, you know, incredibly bright guy. He's like, look, the reason healthcare is messed up is because the incentives are all wrong. And so rather than talking about all these like, you know, bells and whistles of all these different vendors, the key is incentive alignment. And through a nearsight on-site clinic, you can achieve that incentive alignment by getting the doc off a of fee-for-service, getting them on salary. And by the way, the doc wants to do that, right? I mean, you have to obviously pay them a, a decent salary. But a primary care physician, an internist, a family practice physician, uh, et cetera, like they, like they want to help people. Like that's, I mean, it's like, I don't, you know, and, and it's, you know, and, and by the way, the majority of physicians at academic medical centers in America are on, are on salary. I mean, the model exists. There are huge swaths of physicians that are on salary. And so to the extent that you can do that, and I have seen, and I'll, I'll, I, I won't go on and on about this, but I have seen nearsight onsite clinics used for employee populations as small as probably like 200, 250 employees. And okay. so, you know, maybe it's a nurse practitioner. But the point is, is that even if you are an employer that has, you know, multiple sites that are not near each other, let's say Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio. So let's say you got four people, you got 250 people at each one of those locations. Like I have seen companies that have put in near site on site in those four places to reach those people. And of course, you can pilot it. You can start with one location per year and expand it over mm -hmm. time, et cetera. But you don't have to be, you know. So obviously automotive manufacturers do this a lot. Like, so you don't have to be like Honda of America or Toyota of America and have, you know, a, you know, 5,000 employees at one plant in Tennessee to, to warrant having an on-site clinic. You don't have to do that. And I really think a lot of municipalities are totally like getting that and are doing it more and more. I talked to a fair number of brokers and consultants in uh, Wisconsin, and they said that is very popular with the uh with the municipalities and the school systems in wisconsin oh by the way wisconsin as a state has some of the highest healthcare costs in america right so they got a problem in wisconsin they have a healthcare cost problem in yeah wisconsin. And, and that is oh by the way that's where serograph is located and so i think that and again so this is not quote unquote a theoretical discussion by dr eric Berger. i mean this is like this has happened in the past and it's been successful and it's happening today 
Awesome. Quick question. I mean, do you know like how many primary care doctors are salaried or doctors in general are salaried? I've never seen kind of what percentage are fee for service or salaried. Do you have any idea kind of how that breaks out? I wouldn't be able to tell you in terms of percentage, but I, it, but in terms of like where they're employed, that's how you can identify them. So one, obviously, um, Kaiser physicians are, mm-hmm. to my understanding, they're salaried. Okay. I, I have a good, good friend of mine who uh, is a Kaiser physician. He's on salary. He's not, he's not a primary care physician, but regardless, mm-hmm. he's on salary. So certainly in Texas, that's not an option for you. But number two are those academic physicians. So they are typically salaried as well. And I will tell you that I myself personally, I mean, I'm in my 40s. I have a primary care physician and they're at UT Southwestern. I mean, I specifically for my own health, I wanted a salaried doctor mm-hmm. and he's great. He's like, you know, highly competent. You know, he, you know, he orders tests on me. It's not like he does nothing. Um, you know, so because at the end of the day, like he wants to do the right thing and he is going to be paid like for doing the right thing as opposed for like doing too much. So, um, I, you know, Obviously, the vast majority of physicians in Texas do not work at academic medical centers. However, Mm -hmm. are there, um, I think the challenge is, I got to drive to UT Southwestern to go see him. Yeah. And one of the best proxies for where a person will receive healthcare is either where they live or where they work. I mean, people just do not Mm -hmm. drive far. I mean, that's that's just kind of their thing. And that's, and, and that's fine. Listen, that's okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not judging them for that, but I'm just saying that you got to ask yourself well, what's important to you. And for me, having somebody who is incentivized correctly to look after my health. And I, you know, I also, I only go to see him once a year. So but I don't mind that. Yeah, for sure. But, um, and, that, and that's where the onsite, and that's the key for the onsite near site clinic is, is that it creates that spatial relationship that's just much more convenient. So that's where one, it's got to be convenient. So that's why you do onsite near site. And then two, it's free. So mm-hmm. that's where, you know, my, of course, my, my preventive, you know, physicals are free every year, you know, quote unquote free to me. Zero out of pocket costs is what I should say. So, and that's where, that's what John Tornis did at Saragraph. And that's what um, I see as, or it's very low copay, like $5 to go see them because you want to remove the financial barriers to see them as well. And so what are you going to see? Are you going to see some overutilization of that near site onsite clinic? Absolutely. Yeah. Are you going to see people that are going there that probably don't need to go there? Absolutely. And guess what? I don't care. Like, I think that's a good thing. Because if they're not overutilizing that onsite clinic, they're probably going to be overutilizing something else. Yeah. Much and more urgent care or something like that. And, and you have to, you know, sort of the, one of the, one of the sayings is it, with, uh, with appendicitis in medicine is that unless the surgeon is actually taking out some normal appendixes, then they're probably not doing enough appendectomies. In other words, you kind of have to you kind of have to overdo it, and you're going to have to. It, it's called a type two error. You're going to have to make some errors in having a false in having a false positive. In other words, you think the person has appendicitis. You do the you do the surgery. They actually do not have appendicitis, but that's okay. Like that is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's likewise with people going to this nearsighted onsite clinic, you're going to have people going there that probably don't need to go there. But that's okay. You need to do that in order to capture enough of the people that really do need to go there. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on PBMs and kind of the RX system as a whole and kind of any changes that you think are 
easily fixable kind of given the the whole conversation there well in in terms of the world of pharmacy benefits managers i mean of course people are becoming aware as light is being shown on their business model in terms mm-hmm. of spread pricing yeah. and rebates from pharmaceutical companies being paid to them okay so i don't you know for the sake of our viewers we will not get into those two things but just <laughs> to say that that business model appears to be not sustainable that they're just not going to be able to continue that and so that's where there are more and growing numbers of you know quote unquote tra- transparent pbms that are essentially charging a PEPM or mm-hmm. a per script fee which you know are per transaction fee which you know which kind of which kind of makes sense right i mean that's where that 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 is again it's it's the alignment you want to align the incentives so the traditional model for a pbm with spread pricing and with rebates there the incentives are not aligned appropriately because there the PBM actually wants you to have more high-priced medications be filled because they would get more rebate payments from the pharmaceutical companies when that happened. So that is misalignment. Whereas if you get paid a per script fee, yes, the PBM wants more scripts, but they don't care about the price of the script. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my favorite story is that, would, you know, because we were on an HSA plan at Compass and the uh, prescription diaper rash cream for my kids when they were babies was literally like 88 cents per tube. It was like unbelievable. <laughs> like you know, yeah. I was, if I was paying like a five or $10 copay, it was still like much more than the actual cost of the medication. Mm. Right? So it was like dirt cheap. And the, the key there is, is that in order to use one of these quote unquote carve out PBMs, you got to be self-funded. And Absolutely. so obviously you and many of your colleagues for many years have been talking about the advantages of self-funding. And I think now this just adds another reason to self-fund. And you can even, I mean, you can even self-fund with like a major carrier ASO or with one of these TPAs that are owned by a carrier. You can still use a major network. You don't have to use some really big network. And, you know, in addition to the PBM, obviously having the data is super important. And the fully mm-hmm. insured data is just not there. But really having the data from being self-funded, you know, I talked about the broker consultant and HR being the quote-unquote doctors for diagnosing the plan. Well, the data is what you need in order to, to diagnose the plan. And in being self-funded, it actually then gives you access to the data to make an appropriate diagnosis. So, yes, there are some diagnostic things that you can do with a fully insured plan's data. It's just not nearly as good as if you were self-funded. So mm-hmm. I won't go into all the reasons why you should self-fund. Matt, I'm sure you could talk for ages and ages about that. Absolutely. But that's where the, you know, the carve-out with the, the transparent pass-through PBM is definitely one of the major advantages. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, I saw your video on Haven Healthcare. I'd be interested to see what you think they'll end up doing, if you think it'll be successful. Obviously, there are some conflicts there that you brought up in your video a week or two ago, but interested to hear if you have any further thoughts on that. So Haven Healthcare is the name of the Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase partnership to, mm-hmm. quote unquote, fix healthcare. Now that's not their claim. They're not claiming to, quote unquote, fix healthcare. But they want to do what, you know, most organizations want to do that want to improve healthcare, right? So they want to increase the yeah. healthcare quality. They want to make the healthcare experience easier for patients. And they want to bring down the cost. They are all, all very, you know, laudable 
and it was given the name of Haven just this past March, so like what's that, like two, three months ago. And mm-hmm. it is they named the CEO uh, Dr. Atul Gawande last year in 2018. Dr. Atul Gawande was one of the famous physicians in America. He's a surgeon from Harvard. He wrote uh, multiple famous articles from the New Yorker about underlying reasons for you know healthcare costs rising. Incredibly uh, smart gentleman, incredibly well respected, and. Um, the challenge is that there are companies within the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio mm-hmm. that have, that base their revenue and their profit margin off of low-value healthcare. In other words, healthcare that is probably priced much higher than the value that they're delivering. And the exam- one of the prime examples of that is the, De- the DeVita Dialysis Company. Mm-hmm where Berkshire Hathaway is the largest stock owner of DeVita. I mean, yes, it's a publicly traded company. Anybody can own shares in it. And DeVita charges uh, commercially insured uh, plans upwards of two dollars to $4,000 per dialysis session, whereas Medicare only reimburses about $200, $250. So they're charging you know, more than 10 times more what Medicare charges. And they're typically doing that because they have such a large percentage of the market. So between DeVita and Fresenius, I think that's like between like two thirds or three quarters of all dialysis facilities in America are owned by those two organizations. And so just through their market power, they're able to command such high reimbursement, right? Of course, you know, the insurance carrier doesn't want to pay them that much. No employer plan wants to pay that much. So um, Dr. Tugawande, if he were to look at, you know, healthcare costs for an organization, especially an organization like Berkshire or Amazon or J.P. Morgan Chase would be like, oh, our dialysis costs go through the roof. They could, they could create some sort of, you know, strategy to, you know, um, you know, transport in luxury fashion people to non-diabetes dialysis facilities that are much less expensive. And they would still, even with all the luxury of like a limousine or whatever, they could still save a ton of money on dialysis by having people not go to the Vita. But of course, that uh, immediately impacts DeVita's top and bottom line. And so there you have Berkshire Hathaway that has a partnership that it has formed that is essentially hurting its own portfolio. Now, Berkshire Hathaway also owns a a large number of uh, pharmaceutical companies as well. And so they, of course, you know, there there could be ways for Tugawande to really promote use of greater, you know, generics and not the branding medications of these pharmaceutical companies as well. They also would be you know, quote unquote, harmed by the actions of Haven. And so, listen, I'm just saying, like, let's let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. Can I? Am I saying that Haven can't do anything? No, of course I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that that needs that needs to be disclosed. Maybe Haven just needs to come out and say, look, we're just not going to touch dialysis mm-hmm. because of you know, or we're just not going to touch drugs because of Berkshire Hathaway. So we'll see. I don't know. Yeah, maybe your video will spark that conversation. Uh, I, I highly doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> Any bold predictions for kind of the future of healthcare or changes that you would make in healthcare today? Well, my only prediction is that whatever I say is going to, to be wrong. <laughs> so, I have no crystal ball. I have no ability to predict future. I just will say, that based on past experience, it's really just the speed at which change happens. Mm-hmm. So um, 
it's, it's, it's going to be slow. I mean, everybody, you know, I, I, like I literally just did a video today where I um, referenced a health affairs article from 1996. In ni- that, that, you should go back and read that article from health affairs in 1996 and then another one from 2005. So we're talking, you know, 20, 25 and, you know, 15 years ago. And those articles read exactly like the articles that are written today in terms of the, the, the crisis in healthcare costs, in terms of the, the problems with yeah. you know, employer complacency, with the problems with the government. I mean, it's exactly the same. It's been going on for forever. Yeah, Medicare for all, you name it. I mean, it's been going on for forever. And, and everyone's like, something needs to happen. Something needs to happen. They were saying that in 1986. Something needs to happen. And so, I mean, is change going to happen? Yes. Is change for the better going to happen? Yes. It's going to be slow. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't, you know, so, you know, so anyway, what are, what are the, impl- what are the implications for that? Is that the, for employers, like, well, I'll tell you what the biggest implication is. Frankly, if you're a startup, you better, you better, and you're not making any money, you better not burn your cash fast. Yeah. Because whatever speed you think you're going to grow, you are not going to go anywhere close to that. So that's all I will say is it's just, it's, it's just, it's like molasses. So that, that's, that's my, that's my only thing is I, I don't, you know, yes, we have a crisis. We've had a perpetual state of crisis for 25 years. Um, will we make movements uh, in terms of improvement over time? Yes, it's going to be slow, but that's okay. I mean, I, you know, I just, of course, would I like it to be faster? Of course, I'd like it to be faster. Um, am I going to be an impetus for change and try to accelerate that? Of course, I'm going to try to accelerate that. But, you know, we, 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 we live in the world in which we have, and this is the reality in which we need to deal with. And, uh, and I appreciate folks like you, Matt, that are also doing your part to try to advance things as well. So, you know, so kudos to you for doing this podcast and for the work that you and your colleagues do. Um, because, you know, I, I, you know, I, I value, you know, HR and brokers and consultants, you know, so much. I'll, I'll end with a John Tornis quote. Okay. He's like, look, everybody knows, you know, one of the golden rules. And one of the golden rules is he who has the gold makes the rules. And at the end of the day, it's the employer's money, right? Mm-hmm. It's the employers that are, that are, that are paying for all this. And I think that over time, employers are, are realizing, look, they can actually call more shots. They really can. And I think they will. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good spot to, to end. I really appreciate you coming on and uh, good luck with A Healthcare Z and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Matt. And thank you all for listening. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in to our conversation with Dr. Bricker. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd love if you subscribe, leave a review and share the show with a friend. Thanks again, and we will see you next time on Healthy Conversations.